Welcome to the reading of the Lexington Herald-Leader. It's Sunday, Easter Sunday, April 9th, 2023. Happy Easter. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for listeners who are blind or have difficulty accessing printed material. The paper is donated to Radio Eye by the publisher, and your reader today is David Halfley. Let's begin with the WKYT five-day forecast for this holiday weekend, and it's going to be an Easter-ish spring day in the bluegrass. Today, it's going to be sunny or mostly sunny, high of 65 degrees, pretty mild out with just a few clouds on the horizon, a nice day to get the grass to begin coming out of the ground and to enjoy some sunshine. So a nice day for Easter. And the weather gets increasingly nice over the course of the week. Tomorrow, Monday, 68 degrees and mostly sunny. Tuesday, 71 degrees, full sun and very pleasant. Wednesday, it'll be 75 degrees and mostly sunny. And on Thursday, even better, it's called sunny and nice, 75 beautiful degrees, a low of 51. On Friday, it was cool. It was only 57 degrees. Typically, it gets up to 64 this time of year, but it was cooler than that. Last year was much like this last Friday, only 56 degrees. Back in 2001, 84 beautiful degrees, and in 1982, brr, 18 degrees. And we just had a full moon a couple of days ago, so we're going to have to wait for a bit. The next full moon will be on May 5th. And for those that are uh, have allergies or are watching out for uh, irritants in the air, the pollen count or the uh, the pollen count today is fine is high. Uh, the main offender will be trees. So a nice forecast today for Easter Sunday. And it being Easter, we would, of course, always welcome a contributor, a columnist from um, uh, Reverend uh, Paul Prather. Uh, Reverend Prather preaches at Bethesda Church in Mount Sterling, Kentucky. And he would, of course, have a Easter message for us today, which he does. It's entitled, Easter Shows Us a Better Way of Being Human. Paul Prather. This is Holy Week on the Christian calendar, culminating on Sunday with Easter, which is Christ's Christendom's most important day. Christmas gets better PR, but Easter is way more important. I didn't plan it this way because I rarely plan anything this neatly. But it happened that this Easter, my congregation's Wednesday night Bible study group is well into the Gospel of John. For me, that New Testament book includes the most engaging account of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Whereas the other three Gospels, which are also called synoptic Gospels in church speaks, tells us Jesus' story fairly straightforwardly, John writes his whole biography of Jesus on a kind of metaphorical level. The narrative includes multiple layers of meaning and weaves in subtle allusions to the Old Testament. It's as if John were to say, 
where it's, it's as if to say John held a PhD in literature, which assuredly he did not. But he's a lot of fun to read if you're both a Bible nerd and a literature nerd, which unfortunately I am. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, one of my go-to sources, released a six-minute video explaining a bit of what John the writer was up to in his telling of the Easter events. Among other things, John's gospel includes a series of echoes of the Genesis story, Wright says. Chapter 1 even starts with the Genesis line, In the Beginning. By the time John has gotten to, gotten to what we now call Good Friday, we're on the sixth day of his reworking of the creation story. In Genesis, the sixth day is when Adam appears. Adam, translated, simply means man. Now, Jesus is put on trial. Pilate has him flogged. Roman soldiers mockingly clothe him in a purple robe that signifies royalty and a crown of thorns on his head. Then Pontius Pilate brings Jesus before a hostile crowd that wants him crucified and declares, Behold the man, which, in a manner of speaking, Pilate is saying, Look at your Adam, even though Pilate is unaware of his words' ramifications. This sort of thing happens throughout John's Gospel. People say things of great import without realizing what they're saying. Pontius Pilate orders that Jesus be crucified and a sign hung above his head, sarcastically saying, the King of the Jews. As Jesus dies on the sixth day of the week, he utters, it is finished. The statement again echoes Genesis, where God finishes his creative work on the sixth day. On the seventh day, Jesus rests in a tomb, as in Genesis, God, as in Genesis, God takes a similar day of. Hang on just a minute, please. Takes a similar day of rest from his labors. Jesus' resurrection occurs on the eighth day, the start of a brand new week, or a brand new creation cycle, if you will. For John, the cosmos has shifted over the fateful weekend. Significantly, in John's Gospel, when Mary Magdalene encounters the risen Jesus <clears throat> early that Easter morning, she mistakes him for the gardener. Thus, in John's economy, the second Adam has come to the garden, having reversed the spiritual fall from Eden of the first Adam. Everybody gets a fresh start. The clock is reset. What's the significance? Why does it matter? Well, glad you asked. The Easter story, as John tells it, basically sets the world on its head. It defies expectations. A king arrives in the holy city, possibly as it is a deliverer from Roman occupation. But it isn't driving an ornate chariot pulled by a magnificent horse. He's not surrounded by elite troops. He's riding a donkey, an almost comical image. His coronation consists of getting flogged, bloody, crowned with thorns, briefly clothed in purple, 
and then stripped naked. He's tortured on a cross, a brutal form of execution reserved for the vilest criminals. This is the Deliverer? The King above all kings? The Lord of all lords? Yes, yes, and yes, John is telling us. He's a sovereign who, unlike Caesar or any other ruler, doesn't lord over doesn't lord it over his subjects, but instead suffers vile indignity. They suffer pain, disappointment, humiliation, and death. And he endures it all without hatred or threats of vengeance or self-pity. He shows immeasurable compassion. He loves even his murderer. Jesus takes, quote, the sorrow and shame and hatred of violence of all the world and puts it with once and for all on himself, according to Wright's words. He's the kind of human we were created to be, but failed miserably at. Christians traditionally have claimed Jesus was God Almighty, inhibiting human flesh. Quote, God loves things by becoming them, as the Catholic contemplative Richard Rohr has put it. Excuse me. Jesus's, John's Jesus demonstrates his love by living alongside of us and dying as one of us, subject to the worst life can deal, while showing us a better way of being. Then he leads us back to the garden for a fresh start. He welcomes us in, as if we'll only come. Paul Prather, Prester, Bethesda Church, near Mount Sterling, Kentucky. And let's head back to the front page of today's Herald Leader and tuck into the paper and see what is in the news as I do that. And we'll start with uh, a story about uh, Eastern Kentucky and the revitalization of a grand, grand space. This is entitled, It Was a Grand Site. S-I-T-E. Work underway to restore an East, a historic Eastern Kentucky theater. Dateline, Cumberland, Kentucky. Someday, Marilyn Monroe, Aubrey Hepburn may star again on the screen of the historic Novo, that's N-O-V-O, theater. The theater opened in 1937 on Main Street in Cumberland, located in Harlan County. But like many downtown theaters beset by age and other entertainment options, including watching movies at home, the Novel ultimately stopped showing films. Ministries used it for live music for a time, but it closed altogether several years ago. An effort is underway to resurrect it, however, Darla Saylor-Jackson bought the defunct the theater in 2021 and is working to get it open again over the next several months. Saylor-Jackson said theaters were once the heart of downtown areas and she wants to bring that back to 
Cumberland. And let me see if I can find the jump for the story. It was a big deal to go downtown. Well, okay. I think it will add character to the downtown, she said. The work to reopen up the theater is the part of an effort to revitalize downtown Cumberland, one of the tri-cities with nearby Benham and Lynch, both historic coal towns. Retail outlets have dwindled in downtown, and a number of buildings were vacant. But that has begun to turn around, says Paul Browning II, the third, the local tourism director and Harlan County magistrate. Several retail businesses have opened up in the last few years, and more than 20 commercial properties have changed hands since 2019, as long-time owners finally sold them, creating opportunities for development, said Browning. The economic development, I think, will happen, said Browning. Sailor Jackson owns several other buildings in Cumberland, and there are plans for development, including a clothing store and a coffee shop. Valerie Long Hinkle, who owns Hill and Holiday Clothing and Gift Shop in Cumberland, said that Novo could play a key role in revitalizing downtown as part of a trifecta of food, shopping, and entertainment to help draw visitors. Having something like the Novo back not only helps the community's historic preservation efforts, but also could help funnel money into our local shops and eateries as well, said Hinkle. Businessman J.E. Isaac built the Novo and other theaters in several towns in the coal fields, according to former Lexington Mayor Teresa Isaac. His granddaughter, J.E. Isaac, went to considerable expense on the Novo, which replaced a smaller theater, hiring well-known architect John Eberson to design it and using high-quality materials, including expensive terrazzo tile in the lobby that's still in good shape more than 80 years later. Browning said it was his understanding that the building was the first in town to offer air conditioning. J.E. Isaac's children ran the family theater, including his son Sam, who ran the Novo, Teresa Isaac says. It was the entertainment for all of the coal miners, she said. The Novo was also popular with kids because it featured the Mickey Mouse Club on Saturdays, Isaac said. Isaac said she helped take up tickets and sell popcorn as a little girl before her family moved to Lexington back in 1964. Dwayne Lester, who graduated high school in Cumberland in 1981, has researched the history of the Novo Theater and said residents lined up to see movies. Holy cow, the Novo is the place to be, said Lester, who now lives in Three Rivers, Michigan. It was a grand sight to see when you were in town. Lester said Gone with the Wind, which premiered in late 1939, was the longest-running movie at the Novo, drawing crowds for weeks. Sailor Jackson wants to use the Novo to show classic movies, mentioning The Seven-Year Rich and Breakfast at Tiffany's as example, 
and also wants to make the building available for rents such as weddings, dance recitals, and meetings. I would like it to be for a place where the community could gather, she said. Sailor Jackson said a prior owner had fixed the roof and done other work at the Novo, leaving it in good shape, but there's still cleaning, painting, and some renovation, such as a dropped ceiling, required to get the building ready. She said she is trying to get the building in as much as an original condition as possible. She and Brownie have found admission tickets from years ago, promotional materials, financial records, and even the blueprints Urbison sent for approval. Sailor Jackson says she loves Art Deco architecture and older buildings. I love preservation, Sailor Jackson said. You start peeling back the layers and you find treasures. And here's a story that's related to that. That says, Thriving Business Climate. Retail is growing in several downtown and eastern Kentucky communities. Dateline Hazard. On a short walk through downtown Hazard, you can buy a t-shirt celebrating Appalachia and a three-wick candle. Browse at a bookstore and a record store. Get a latte at a coffee shop and a BLT wrap at a sandwich shop. And shop from a toy store for anything from dolls to train sets. The eastern Kentucky city of about 5,100 people has seen a resurgence in downtown re retail businesses in the last four years. In that time, more than 40 businesses have opened on or near Main Street, nearly all that are still afloat, outlasting the worst health, health pandemic in a century and devastating flooding in the region last summer. Coal jobs were once the cornerstone of the economy in many eastern Kentucky counties, but plunged businesses just over a decade ago. The region has lost population as the people moved to find work. But Hazard isn't the only city in the long-time eastern Kentucky coal counties to see business growth downtown, as well as public artwork, parks, beautification projects, performance spaces, and other amenities. Not every downtown has seen as much development, but the growth shows there is a lot of opportunity in the region, and officials said officials who were interviewed for this story said, quote, you can come to eastern Kentucky and make an investment and get on the ground floor of something really exciting, said Laura Atkinson, downtown development director for Harland Tourism. I think reports of our decline were over-exaggerated. Making the city better. Hazard's downtown has gone through an evolution like many across Kentucky and the nation. A once busy center of small shops and department stores that emptied out as businesses moved to shopping centers on highways skirting town, leaving downtown by dominated by banks, offices, and government buildings. Downtown was became a place where most people went for appointments, not shopping or entertainment. You could do everything in downtown Hazard. Throw the years and through the years it just completely died, said Joel McKenney, who who grew up in town and owns Appalachian Apparel, which makes t shirts. 
local leaders and business takeovers set out several years ago to try to reverse that. One decision was for the city to pool resources to hire Bailey Richards as downtown coordinator, a position that hasn't previously existed. In Vision, in Vision Hazard, a citizens group set up to discuss ways to improve the city had recommended the position. Mindy Fugate Shuffle, who owns the Reed Spotted Newt, <laughs> Reed Spotted Newt bookstore on Main Street in Hazard, said the city and county governments led by Mayor Happy Mobilini and Perry County Judge Exec Scott Alexander deserve credit for working together and hiring Richards to focus on developing downtown. I think her position is probably one of the most important things that's happened downtown, Schiffel said. There was some action put into what they were trying to do. In some ways, Richards was an extra employee for downtown businesses. She keeps up with what spaces are available to rent and has helped renegotiate leases, designs, and even fetch milk for the Hazard Coffee Company. The city created an incentive program, initially with money from the Foundation for Appalachian, Kentucky, and then taxpayer money to provide grants of up to $5,000 for sign, store fixtures, and other needs. It also approved an ordinance that can impose higher taxes on blighted or abandoned buildings as the way to get the owners to fix them or sell them. Up enforcement of the two-hour parking limit to keep spaces freed up and paid to, conf to convert a former office building on Main Street into a space for small retail shops. Richard said, the Hazard Coffee Company is in that building. Getting access to that space with no renovation costs and good rent has been a significant help, said Stephen Prosser, who owns the company with his wife, Maggie Francis Prosser. They're not in the business of making money. They're in the business of making the city better, Prosser said, of local leadership. Excuse me. Kitty McDougat, head of the state's Main Street program, said it was once rare for cities to offer cities incentives for downtown development, but it has become more commonplace. The incentives range from free utility tap-ons to rent subsidies and roof repairs. Pineville was an early leader in using incentives to boost downtown development, including grants and a five-year moratorium on an increase of property tax, even though the rented property may go up in value. Even though Bell County lost population between 2010 and 2020, the downtown area went from a 80% vacancy eight years ago to 100% occupancy by February 2020, said Jacob Rohn, director of the city's Main Street program. The city has since helped with other information on incentives. We want to see the entire region grow and succeed. Rohn said, bringing downtown back. Several business owners in downtown Hazard said incentives had helped, but they weren't the main reason they decided to own uh, open downtown instead of in a shopping center. Many were motivated by to by wanting to be part of the revitalization of retail in downtowns. 
McKinney said there were no other shops in downtown where, when he opened the Appalachian Apparel Store on Main Street in September 2018. The business operated online for a year before it opened downtown. It was a big deal to go downtown when he was growing up, McKinney said, and he wanted to be part of making downtown a shopping destination again. I love the idea of bringing downtown back, he said. Only three of the 40-plus businesses that have opened in downtown since early 2019 have closed. Richard said, a far lower percentage than the national average. These days, however, the numbers of business owners who want to open downtown exceeds the number of available spaces that are ready, and owners of several existing businesses said their bottom line has grown since opening. Shuffle, for instance, started in a tiny space of just 250 square feet in early 2020 but had to move to a larger space before the year was out. I have had continued growth, she said. The Reed Spotted Newt, the name is a combination of her love for reading and the brand and the bright salamander Sheffel's grandfather helped her look at as a kid, carries a range of books, but has a special focus on ones by Appalachian authors or about the region. I think these books, I think these are books that people can see themselves in, Sheffel said. At the Ready, Set, Play toy store, which opened on Main Street in Hazard in April 2022, owners Joy and Nikki Jones kept their full-time jobs as they built the business. He's a social worker and she works in healthcare. But in March, he left his job to focus on the store and they hired their first part-time employee. The store carries brands that big box stores don't sell, allowing kids to play with toys before buying them to see if they like them, and to set up birthday registries and discounts for buying on the list. Online orders have also grown, said Jones. Orders went out to Florida, Tennessee, Nevada, and California. We're gaining customers weekly, he said. Prosser, the Hazard Coffee Company owner, said his business has grown four times since opening in May 2021. And there's more to this story, and we'll continue reading when we come back to Radio I in just a minute. Please stay tuned. Welcome back to the reading of the Lexington Herald-Leader. It's Sunday, Easter Sunday, April 9th, 2023. And we're in the middle of a two- uh, two piece, uh, two part story about, uh, downtown revitalization and economic development in Eastern Kentucky. And let's continue. Long term economic development. McKinney and Appalachian Apparel and Randy Gabbard, owner of Coal Country Candles, share a building and say they have scenes grown since operations in downtown as well. Since opening in downtown also. McKinney, who sells online and in the store and does fundraisings to help local causes, such as a relief for the disastrous flooding in July 2022, said his sales grew 178% the first year in downtown and more during the coronavirus pandemic. Gabbard, who makes candles on site, doesn't have any employees yet, but 
said he hopes to hire soon and hopes to set up a process to let people pour their own candles. It's been amazing over the last couple years, he said. Richard said the store downtown helps promote each other, and in some cases, they even sell each other's merchandise. The stores have opened recently in downtown, have created more than 100, 150 jobs, according to Richards. Improving downtown not only improves the quality of life for local people, but makes the place more attractive to investors, Richard said. Really, we see investment in downtown and small business and retail and fun all along those things as investments and long-term economic development, Richard said. Growth and diversification. In Harland, there are small businesses there are more small businesses in downtown than there were five years ago. Most of the places that are ready to be occupied without renovations, according to Atkinson. The occupancy rates in buildings downtown has increased from 78% to 86%, Atkinson said, although there are few available buildings because of fires and demolitions. The city has added a dog park a charging station for electric vehicles, and a permanent stage for downtown, and has grants to improve building facades. Work is underway on developing an art center and a history museum, and the city just received a favorable study on the feasibility of building a mid-sized hotel downtown, Atkinson said. One of the additions is the Harlan Beer Company, a tap room and restaurant restaurant located in a renovated century-old building. The business has has opened in October and has doubled the initial projection on sales, said the owner, Jeff Marietta. I do think there's been a lot of growth and diversification over the last five years in eastern Kentucky, said Marietta, who also has a wedding and event space in Corbin, called Second and Main, and runs 606, a nonprofit business that makes small grants to businesses in the region. In Middlesbrough, every usable space in downtown for retail business is filled, and there is a waiting list, says Joni Jasper, executive director of the city's Main Street program, which has pushed training for entrepreneurs. Some building owners have reduced rent to make it easier for people to open businesses, and the city used $50,000 from federal COVID-19 relief money last year to subsidize rent for small businesses. A number of downtown businesses have apartments on the second floor. Students who attend Lincoln Memorial University in nearby Harrogate, Tennessee, rent many of them, and these students are helping drive retail businesses, said Jasper. We really have built up some momentum, she said. Officials in other cities, including Pikeville and Ashland, have had success in building up downtown in recent years. All of our downtowns are so unique, said Dowgood. Support local business. Business owners and development officials think there are a number of reasons several eastern Kentucky downtowns are seeing growth. One is increased interest in shopping at locally owned businesses. 
Quote, there's been a big surge in people who want to support local businesses, not the big box stores, said Gabbard, owner of Coal Country Candles and Hazard. Valerie Longhinkle has seen the same thing at her business, Hills and Ho- Hill and Holler, which sells t-shirts and other gifts with an Appalachian theme in Cumberland, a town of about 1,900 people in Harlan County. Hinkle studied architecture at the University of Kentucky and stayed afterwards, living in Lexington a total of 13 years before moving home to Harlan County in 2015 to be closer to family. Hinkle started selling online in 2013. By 2019, her business had grown to the point she moved into the building in downtown and now has three part-time employees. Quote, I think people are hungry to support their local community, Hinkle said, whose store is a full-throated tribute to Appalachia heritage and pride. They are hungry to be able to shop in downtown. Shuffle, owner of Red Spotted Newt, said it was once a mark of success to get a big box store in town, but these days people want to support local businesses. You know where the money's going? The money stays in the community, Shuffle said. There are undoubtedly challenges in the region. The stock of affordable housing is tight, and the poverty rate in eastern Kentucky is more than double the national level. Not all cities are doing well. Blackie, a coal town in Letcher County, gave up its incorporation status last year, and Vico, another coal town in Perry County, will be dissolved this year after the government stopped functioning. But local officials and business owners said healthcare, small business, and tourism tied to the area's natural beauty, history, and outdoor attractions are combining to reshape the economy and improvements in internet service help businesses sell far beyond the county borders. The sharp decline in the coal industry has been painful for people who lost jobs, businesses that lost sales, and local governments that lost tax revenue. But it has helped set the stage for local entrepreneurs to take chances, Atkins can said. What we formed from that is a thriving, locally-owned small business climate, she said. The growth of retail in several eastern Kentucky downtowns is also by, driven by people who moved away for college or work, but moved back in recent years to get closer to family or to get out of more crowded, costly places. Hinkle said there was once an idea in Appalachia that young people had to leave to be successful, but that is changing. Quote, I think Appalachia is on the cusp of something big, she said. And that story was reported from Eastern Kentucky by Bill Estep. And let's see if we can find some other local stories here. And we'll turn to our tried and true, but it's good news, stories about COVID-19 in Kentucky. This is some good news. After a week of all Kentucky counties having low COVID, two have moved back to medium. Levels of COVID-19 are on the rise in two Kentucky counties, according to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, which reports that the state has added nearly 1,500 new cases 
The latest CDC data published Thursday follows a week in which the state was blanketed in green with low COVID-19 community levels and zero counties were elevated. The community levels are updated each Thursday by the CDC and based upon weekly totals of new infections and hospital admissions. And weekly averages of hospital beds. Kentucky also experienced an increase in COVID-19 deaths this week, with the CDC reporting 57 new deaths. Here's the latest on where Kentucky stands. The latest seven-day numbers show the CD show that Kentucky added almost 1,500 new cases. That's down from the over 2,000 new cases added the week before. This represents, though, includes 57 additional deaths, an increase from the previous week. Two counties in Kentucky had elevated levels from low to medium, and that included Bath and Montgomery during the previous reporting period. Bath and Montgomery County population are vulnerable to the severe COVID-19, including the elderly and people with certain medical conditions, and those people should consider masking and staying indoors. In March, the state began reporting COVID data through a dashboard, which does not include some of the earlier data. Good news in Lexington, Fayette County remains at a low community level of COVID-19 cases with the rate of just 24 per 100,000 people and only 78 total cases. The CDC recommends that those who have not received a vaccine since before September 2022 should get boosted. To find a free shot near you, just call your local pharmacy or the Fayette County Health Department. And let's see what's else in the news today. Well, this is somewhat of a, uh, well, tornado deaths in 2023 already more than doubled, <clears throat> excuse me, since last year. Tornadoes have taken a toll on life and property this year. Most of the April to June peak period still lies ahead. About 60 people have died so far in 23, 2023 from tornadoes, nearly three times higher than all of 2022 when 2020, when 23 people died. So far this year, 17 killer twisters have formed 14 of them since late March, including a pair in Missouri and in Kentucky on Wednesday. Amid violent outbreaks of rotating storms, tornadoes spiked on both March 24th and March 31st. 23 people died, including 16 in Rolling Fork, Missouri, Mississippi on March 24th. At least 24 more people were killed as tornadoes swarmed the central states on March 31st. More than 100 tornadoes spun up that day, among only a handful of days with that many on record. 
around 50 victims of tornado deaths rate in March, ranks as the fourth most on record during the month since 1950. There were also nine tornado deaths reported in January and in February. The state's tornado activity, which may have begun in November and December of last year, that there were seven tornado fatalities and may be related to the La Nina weather pattern. La Nina tends to develop powerful dips in the jet stream throughout the winter and into spring, which increases shear or turning the winds with altitude or turning of the winds with attitude, altitude and storm rotation. Even when La Nina's fade, as has the case in spring 2023, early spring tornado activity often remains high. The super outbreak of 2011 happened on the heels of a La Nina winter. <clears throat> Excuse me. Storms have also been fueled by frequent weather breaking warmth in the southern, in the south, and abnormally high Gulf of Mexico sea surface temperatures, which may indicate a contribution from human-caused climate change. Beyond the background weather pattern, luck also plays a role. If you have outbreaks in unpopulated areas, no one dies, said Harold Brooks, a senior researcher and scientist at the National Severe Storms Laboratory. He wrote in an email, quote, Most tornadoes that kill people, if you move down the path a few miles, it goes way up or way down. Numerous tornadoes this year have hit highly populated zones, including in the south, where are there a disproportionate number of mobile homes, which are particularly vulnerable. Brooks notes that a person is 15 to 20 times more likely to be killed in a mobile home compared to sturdier housing. Their tornado death toll this year, only about 25% complete, is closing in on an annual average of around 70 people. In 2018, the country saw a record low of 10 deaths during the first year on record, with no violent tornadoes rated EF4 or higher on a 0 to 5 scale for intensity. As recently as 2021, tornado fatalities topped 100, with more than 80 coming in December alone, the most on record for that month. That high toll was largely because of an unusual, powerful storm rotating that tracked from Arkansas to Kentucky, dropping multiple killer tornadoes, including the disastrous Mayfield, Kentucky twister. Tornado deaths in recent years, while high at times, pale in comparison to numbers for the past. Brooks' research indicates that tornado deaths average 1.8 people, 1.8 per million people from 1875 to 1925, and are now just 0.16. That's a 90% reduction in tornado deaths. The decline in tornado deaths reflects improved tornado warning and responses. And next, here's an Easter note. 
Pope Francis returns to public eye for Easter Vigil Mass. Dateline, Vatican City. Vatican City. Pope Francis returned to public view on Saturday, presiding over Easter Vigil Mass in St. Peter's Basilica, a day after unusually chilly weather in Rome convinced the recently ailing pontiff to skip the Good Friday nighttime procession to the Colosseum. The evening basilica service began in darkness. Then the basilica's cavernous interior was suddenly bathed in light, reflecting the Christian belief that Jesus rose from his death by crucifixion and that goodness can triumph over evil. The 86-year-old Pope is recovering from bronchitis, which saw him recently hospitalized for three days. On Sunday, tens of thousands of faithful are expected to join the Pope in St. Peter's Square for Easter Mass and listen to his speech about the conflicts in the world at the end of Holy Week. At the start of the Easter Vigil, Francis, who arrived in a wheelchair, wheelchair uses to cope with knee pain, incised in the wax can, incised in the wax of a tall candle of a cross, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, alpha and omega, and the number of the year. Then the candle was lit and carried, carried by a cleric up the basilica's central aisle, passing darkened pews filled with the faithful. Dozens of cardinals and other prelates followed, each carrying a smaller candle. Quote, the church calls upon her sons and daughters scattered throughout the world to come together to watch and pray, Francis said at the beginning of the service. The Basilica Mass during the vigil of Christianity's most important day has become an occasion for the pontiff to baptize several adults from countries around the world. Selected to be baptized this year were eight believers from Albania, the United States, Nigeria, Italy, and Venezuela, according to the Vatican. And as we continue to nip through the paper, let's go back to the front and see what stories. Here's um, one of rising tensions in the Far East. Chinese military start drills encircling Taiwan. The Chinese military on Saturday announced three days of combat readiness drills encircling Taiwan, escalating Beijing's retaliation after House Speaker Kevin McCarthy met with the Taiwanese president in California to show solidarity, democratic solidarity, for the self-governing island, which is claimed by China. The Eastern Theater Command of the People's Liberation Army said that the United Sharp Sword Patrol exercises, which began on Saturday, were a serious warning against the joint provocations of the Taiwan Independence Separatist and external forces designed to demonstrate a posture of deterrence and test China's ability to seize control of the air, sea, and information environment around Taiwan. The announcement ramps up, ramps up what had been an initially a relatively restrained reaction to the meeting, 
which made McCarthy the highest-ranking official to meet a Taiwanese president on U.S. soil since Washington established diplomatic relations with Beijing back in 1979. The House Speaker is second line in succession to the President. China strongly opposed the meeting, as it does any interaction between senior Taiwanese and United States officials. Initially, that response was limited to angry diatribes and symbolic sanctions on the Hudson Institute and the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library, which hosted the Taiwanese president during her stopover in the U.S. on the way back from Central America. The latest bout of saber-rattling began after French President Emmanuel Macron concluded a state visit to China where he was courted by the country's leadership. It appeared less severe than the four-day display of force followed last year by McCarthy's predecessor, Nancy Pelosi. Back then, the Chinese militaries drilled with warships and fighter jets in exclusion zones, large areas of sea and airspace on all sides of Taiwan's main islands, and fired missiles into the waters off Taiwan's eastern coast. Based on Saturday's initial announcement, the intensity of drills was equivalent to a long-distance, large-scale patrol said an official at the at the, at the Tam Kung University in New Taipei City. It's not an exercise specifically focused on the scenario of, the, of a Taiwan evasion, as it was last time. In response to the announcement, Taiwan's defense ministry accused Beijing of using the president's travel to the U.S. as an excuse to cut, conduct destabilizing military drills and said it would respond calmly and rationally so as to monitor the situation without escalation. Taiwanese authorities said eight military ships and 42 warplanes were spotted near Taiwan from 6 a.m. to 11 a.m. local time Saturday. 29 of those jets had flown close to Taiwanese airspace or crossed the median line, an official boundary running down the middle of the Taiwan Strait, that Beijing has increasingly violated in recent years. Even if the Chinese military stops short of its most dangerous behavior in this instance, Taiwanese analysts and officials remain concerned about the constant step-by-step escalation that undermines a fragile military balance that has held for decades. China this week said that its newest aircraft carries 200 nautical miles from Taiwan's coast as it conducts uh, drills for the first time. And here's a a bummer, bummer of a story. Hate cockroaches and other bugs, Kentucky's spring pest outlook Not looking good for you. A rainy start to spring may cause increased mosquito populations in Kentucky this year, according to a federal agency. And that includes ticks and cockroaches and ants that will also persist. The 
report was issued for the summer of 2023 for the Kentucky, for the Kentucky, which is in the Great Lakes, Ohio Valley and Midwest region. That bug barometer is a national seasonal pest forecast. Quote, a school, a cool start to spring followed by a hot and rainy summer could delay the start of the peak pest season. However, warm and wet conditions throughout the summer could lead to increased tick and mosquito activity. Wet summer conditions also drive ants indoors in search of drier nesting locations. I never knew that. As spring brings warmer temperatures, it's a good time to start taking precautions to protect against mosquitoes, ticks, ants, and other pests. A leading researcher told the Herald Leader, quote, We're definitely in that beginning activity period when we start to see a noticeable increase in pest activity. When it comes to mosquitoes, one of the most important things you can do is to avoid attracting them for with any standing water in your backyard. Mosquitoes only need about a bottle cap of water to complete their development. If you need a if you live near a wooded area, you should try to f- create a buffer zone between your property and nature, keeping a strip of gra- grass cut very low and free of debris may help create less than ideal environments. For ants, cockroaches, and mice, Bentley recommends screening recommends checking your screens windows, and doors for any weather stripping that need to be repaired. Seals need to be in good condition to limit access points. Make sure to keep up on your trash collection dates, and even a couple of weeks of buildup allows flies to flock inside your cans. And that summer nuisance Mosquito bites, to prevent that, the EPA recommends people remove mosquito habitats if possible. Once again, this means eliminating standing water and empty and change the water in your bird bath. Well, this wrap ups, this wraps up the next, this section of the Herald Leader. We'll be back in just a minute to start the third half of today's broadcast. Please. Stay tuned. Now it's time for the obituaries for Sunday. It's April 9th, 2023, Easter Sunday. And we will start. We we will read the name, age, and location that the obituary is reported from. All are read in alphabetical order. And from Lexington, Kentucky, Kathleen Adair, 90 years of age. From Rock Hill, Jean Becker, B-E-C-K-E-R, 96 years old. Also Lexington, Mary Lou, that's L-U, Park Bot, 92. Jeffersonville, John C. Bretchen, 65. From Williamstown, Thelma Bryan, 96 years of age. Lexington, 
Terry W. Burdett, 68. From Frankfurt, William A. Carter, 91. Also from Frankfurt, Jesse L. Albert Cheek, C-H-E-A-K, 68. From Springfield, Vicki Lynn Barger Chesser, 65. Larry Wayne Childers, age 74, from Waynesburg. From Lancaster, Nacy Clark, 84. From Liberty, Thomas Clark, age 69. From Cynthiana, Cindy Ann Cowden, 52 years of age. Millersburg, Bessie Crump, C-R-U-M-P, 83. From Willisburg, Dennis Wayne Cutsinger, 73. From Clintonville, John Elkins, 88 years of age. Springfield, John Eric Evans, 45. From Lexington, Dean Grant Fogg, F-O-G-G, 71. From Cottage Grove, Brian Paul Griffith, 68. Shelbyville, Kentucky, Linda May Hayden, 77. Waco, Kentucky, Dillard Hill, 85. From Lexington, Ralph Johnson Jr., 67. From Richmond, Donald Kelly, 74 years of age. From Shelbyville, Joyce Ann Kinder Spalding, 76. Harrodsburg, Marianne, it's M-A-R-I-A-N-N-E, Kirby, 92. From Lexington, Mark A. Lawless, age 70. Liberty, Bernice Francis Luttrell, L-U-T-T-R-E-L-L, 88. From Wellington, Teresa K. Manning, 52. Belfry Troy Wayne Martin, 48 years of age. From Emelina, that's E-M-M-A-L-E-N-A, John Robert Morgan, 85. From Lebanon, Bruce Anthony Nally, N-A-L-L-E-Y, 55. Lexington, Claudia Neal, 71 years of age. From London, Sandra Parman, 80 years of age. From Lexington, jo- Joseph S. Roberts, 85. From Flemingsburg, Calvin Robinson, 70 years of age. From Lawrenceburg, Edward L. Ruggles, Sr., 97. From Frankfurt, Maddie Francis <clears throat> Samuels Bailey, 85. From Wilmore, Richard Henry Schlenter, 83. From Lexington, Delois, Delois, May, M-A-E, Shelton, 91. Mumsfordville, Adam Thompson, 41 years of age. From Campton, Mary Tolson McKinney, 63. Mount Vernon, 
Ronald D. Whitaker, 66 years of age. From Frankfurt, Richard Wilson, 85. And finally, from Lancaster, Kentucky, Catherine Meyer Wood, 57 years of age. Those are the obituaries for the April 9th, 2023, from the Lexington Herald-Leader. And now we're going to go to the opinion section of today's paper. And we'll start with the letters to the editor, as we frequently do. And give me just a minute to find those. And I believe we have. And so let's begin. First, from Sarah Wellnitz, W-E-L-L-N-I-T-Z, unprecedented. Former President Donald Trump's recent indictment has been referred to as surreal and unprecedented. The only event that can be called surreal is that he was ever elected. Time and time again, he has proven that he has no morals and he thinks he is above the law. He clearly incited the January 6th riot in our nation's capital and has tried to do it again by saying his indictment would bring death and destruction. Any other person would be in jail by now. His outlandish rhetoric has given every so-called patriot and religious zealot the courage to come out of the closet and try to destroy the very fiber of our democracy. Every other democratic country is laughing at us. Russia and China are licking their chops at our failure to be a united country. We have never been more divided and vulnerable. There was one reason for our very dire and sad state of affairs, and his name is Trump. If by chance he is elected again, we can kiss our country goodbye. The inmates will be running the asylum and we will continue to go backwards instead of forwards. He should be under the jail. Sarah Wellnitz of Lexington. Yolanda Everett, that's A-V-A-R-E-T-T-E, of Lexington writes, Republican support. It hurts me to my core that every time Republican officials make public statements saying the former president, Donald Trump, is a victim of political persecution. Well, political prosecution. What? Every time a Republican official says Trump hasn't done anything wrong to deserve what is happening to him, I can't stomach it. I feel the need to take another dose of my prescription nausea medication. People don't realize the gravity of their statements and what they mean. My country creeps breaking my heart. Everyone knows Trump is guilty, but Congress, but congressional Republicans subliminal message is deafening. He's a white man. White men rule this country. We can't let this happen. Yolanda Everett, Lexington. Next, the 8th DE, capital A-E-T-H, Ross of Lexington writes, Rule of Law. Former President Donald Trump is indicted! Uh, exclamation mark. 
unprecedented? Yes, it is unprecedented. Trump behaves in countless unprecedented ways while he was in office. He thumbs his nose at law, tradition, rules, and regulation, and his supporter cheered him every step of the way. Unprecedented indeed. It was one of the reasons he was elected. Now is the time for the rule of law to take some unprecedented steps. The Eighth Roth, Ross of Lexington, also from Lexington, is Gene Hart, and he writes, Duped Supporters. Well, <clears throat> boys and girls, how does it feel to once again be duped by former President Donald Trump's latest cry of, the sky is falling, that's being his, I'm going to get arrested, please, after he which sent out a mass email prompting people to contribute even more millions to his campaign fund. Everything is a fundraising opportunity for Trump. And for all of the Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives who jumped at the arrest horror and demanded a formal House investigation just one day after Trump cried he would be arrested, I guess that means it's useful if you investigated how Trump's legal system prompted the House to start formal congressional assessments of what New York was doing. How does it feel to be played like a cheap fiddle? It's like the late Yogi Berra said, it's deja vu all over again. I thought our, Congress, our Kentucky Republican congressional representatives were smarter than to fall for this kind of manipulation. I guess I might have been wrong. Gene Lockhart wrote that from Lexington. From Louisville, we hear from Paul L. Whitley, Sr., Guns First. My response to the horrific killing of three children and three adults at the Covenant Elementary School, a private church school in Nashville, is yes, Republican Party, it is the guns. Republican legislatures all over America, put yourself in the shoes of parents who have lost a child to gun violence. If you would do that, you would vote to ban assault weapons and pass other sensible life-saving gun control laws. Voters in every state in our country must demand that gun violent issues are debated and voted on in every future local, state, and national election. Candidates owe it to the voters to let them know before they seek office where they stand on gun issues before Election Day. The number of mass shootings continues to grow in our country, but our elected legislators in the House and Senate, especially Republicans, do nothing to save lives from unnecessary gun violence. Any politician who won't vote for a federal ban on assault weapons has to be defeated in the polls. A vote for a ban is a no-brainer. And that's from Gene Lockhart in Lexington. And we'll now hear from Cindy Sutton Hoggert, H-A-R-G-E-T-T, from Lexington. Shooter drills. After telling every female in this country they no longer have control over their bodies, Republicans still can't figure out why their predicted 
red wave didn't occur last election. Once again, their blatant, blatant disregard for common sense will result in more losses for the party in 2024. Thanks to the Republicans' refusal to keep assault weapons in the hands of the military, which is the only place they belong, those who have reached legal voting age have been forced to participate in active shooter drills throughout, throughout grades 1 through 12. They will not forget, nor will they forgive, Republicans for closing weapons, choosing weapons rather than providing safe learning environments. Their choices for safer learning consist of banning books and refusing to let students learn about the Civil War. Thanks to Republicans, though, forced pregnancy victims and their families can buy assault weapons to kill their monsters. Set aside China or terrorism's one of the largest and most lethal th threats in this country is those who believe weapons of war belong in the hands of civilians. It's up to voters to do what Republicans refuse to. Cindy Sutton Hargett writes that from Lexington. Tom Lauterbach is also in Lexington, and he opines Democratic failures. Many of us know why Kentucky Democrats are losing elections outside of our biggest cities. We remember that just 10 years ago, our party held the majority of the seats in the Kentucky House of Representatives. Kentucky Democrats were the last state Democratic Party in the South control to control a House in the state legislature. We were exceptional. Our party's fortunes changed abruptly after that, as we have seen. Some might say the emergence of the Trump movement was the cause, and undoubtedly it had a big effect. But I've come to believe another change even had a bigger effect. It appears to me the Kentucky Democrats do not communicate with Tuckians outside the big cities anymore. To make matters worse, we convince ourselves that we could win statewide elections on the urban vote alone. Never mind that our two biggest cities comprise less than 40% of the statewide vote. My suggestion to our party would that we begin to learn the profound method of communication known as nonviolent communication. Most writers on the subject cite five pillars, respect, understanding, acceptance, appreciation, and compassion. As these pillars imply, Democrats need to begin a dialogue that will reach more Kentuckians. That's what Tom Lauterbach of Lexington suggests. Next, from Sue Lee of Crestwood, drug pricing. I was surprised to hear that earlier this year, the first of many biosimilar versions of Humera finally came to the market after decades of being at the mercy of ABV's monopoly drug prices. As someone who had to stop taking the drug because of the ridiculously high price, I hope that biosimilars will help lower the price. I took Humera to treat my chronic plaque psoriasis, and it worked like a wonder drug. It relieved the painful sores caused by my condition. Then, when I retired, one month of Humera cost me $4,000 out of pocket. 
How am I supposed to afford that when I get less than $2,000 a month in Social Security? I had to stop taking Humira entirely. While patients like me struggle to avoid Humira, ABV raised its, its ABB capital VIE, apparently that's a drug company, ABV raised its annual price to more than $80,000 by building a wall of patents that prevented any company from coming to the market for 20 years. Now, with the first Humira biosimilar on the market and additional similars, biosimilars expected to be able at the end of this year, I really hope that competitive competition can drive down their prices for patients like me. We're waiting for relief. And that's from Sue Lee of Crestwood. We next hear from Suzanne Baker Griffith of Ashland. COVID closing. Kentucky, Kentucky State Senator Mike Wilson, Republican of Bowling Green, recent op-ed featured some mis- misleading information. He stated, Glass said we need to focus on academic recovery from COVID-19 pandemic shutdowns when he and the governor are directly responsible for closing schools. To be clear, Governor Andy Bashir did not create or cause COVID. He did deal with it as effectively as possible under the circumstancing, following guidance by experts in the field and former President Donald Trump's White House guidance document, which he often referred to during his daily briefings. During this time, the Republican majority in the Kentucky State Legislature did not offer up any alternative plans, although individual members did voice complaints against Bashir. Remember, over one million Americans have died to COVID, and Bashir's closed school before the vaccine rollout, as did other governors across the nation. Many Kentucky school employees lost their lives due to COVID, along with some students. How many more would have died if schools had remained open with no with no vaccines or other mitigation strategies in place? How much more uh, full of very sick patients would our hospitals have been that were already overflowing? The baseless armchair quarterbacking by state politicians on COVID needs to stop. Thankfully, Bashir did his job. And that's the opinion of Suzanne Barker Griffith of Ashland. And our final letter today is by Wayne Burns, who writes from Lexington, Government Rule. What brilliant, quote, what brilliant criminals the leader and his crowd are. They kidnap the nation by seizing their children. Hitler said it would be a thousand-year empire. This is how he will achieve it. Unquote. That is from the thriller Garden of Beast by Jeffrey Deaver, set in 1936 Berlin. Hitler knew that controlling the thinking of the young would be the cornerstone of the Third Reich. He was the founder of the National Socialist Party's Nazi and knew that controlling thought regulations and crippling fear plus demanding solid loyalty to the Reich were essential 
to his dreams of a forever powerful Germany. There are some parallels to present-day America. The far left is content to go after our children and groom them for starting, starting from college through kindergarten to college. If we cannot see this and act upon it, we can only blame ourselves. Remember that from Hitler Youth, they moved to brown shirts and stormtroopers to the Gestapo and the SS. Pay attention. And that was by Wayne Burns, who wrote that from Lexington. And next we have an editorial from Jay Miller, the dean at the uh, self-care lab at the University of Kentucky. And he's a former uh, foster kinship alum and former child protective services investigator. It's Child Abuse Prevention Month but we should honor frontline workers every day. <clears throat> Jay Miller. April is Child Abuse Prevention Month. It is during this time that families and communities recognize the importance of working together to prevent child abuse and neglect. There is certainly a lot of work to do. In federal fiscal year 2021, child protection agencies across the U.S., received nearly 4 million referrals alleging child abuse of over 7 million children. In Kentucky, there were 84,000 referrals made at a rate of 82% per 1,000 children. Approximately 9,600 young people were found to be first-time victims of child maltreatment. Against that backdrop, I want to take time to recognize those tasked with stepping in and preventing when preventive efforts failed, CPS workers, Child Protection Services. The work of Child Protection Services workers is unheralded, misunderstood, and underappreciated. They are tasked with doing an impossible job. They respond to allegations that most of us couldn't fathom. Neglect, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and yes, child fatalities. Fatalities. When societal efforts to ensure the welfare of children fall apart, we can literally call upon CPS workers to pick up the pieces. To understand the daunting task of child protection, one needs only think about the process. Someone calls a central hotline with a concern. If it meets investigatory criteria, a CPS worker is dispatched. In most instances, there is very little, if any, information about who or what is in the home. The very fact that CPS has been called in most cases indicates the worker may be walking into a potentially dangerous situation. Once at the home, the workers start prodding and asking questions, tough questions. If the responses are not detailed enough, the prodding becomes more. People may become agitated with workers. Workers may become agitated themselves. Workers stop, rewind, and try again. Let's face it, no one wants to have a CPS worker knock on their doors and frankly, CPS workers would not rather 
would rather not be there. But initiating abuse investigations is necessary for child protection. If warranted, a child may be removed from the home. It is important to note that other service systems, namely the courts, are involved in making decisions about removals. Contrary to any sentiments expressing otherwise, there is no good way to remove a child. Workers provide services to children and families with the hope, in most cases, that kids and their parents can be reunited. Sometimes it happens, and sometimes it doesn't. This is a true, be it unfortunate, fact of child protection. As with most things, context is important. CPS workers provide services in a contemporary context of dizzying misconceptions. No, CPS workers don't get paid more if they remove kids. Child removals are actually a lot more work and are a last resort. No, CPS workers cannot just go into a home and remove a child. Only a police officer can do that. CPS CPS workers must seek permission from a judge prior to removals. No, CPS workers are not happy to remove kids. I have been on both sides. I have had them removed from my home, and I have put them on home care, and I was a CPS worker for several years. Removing a child is the most difficult and heartbreaking things one could experience. So, I issue a clarion call to all Kentuckians. Recognize that child abuse prevention is not someone issue. It's an everyone issue. As such, everyone should be involved in a solution. Part of that solution is to honor, appreciate, and support child protection services worker, not just in April, but in every month. That's by Jay Miller. This concludes the reading of the Lexington Herald Leader. It's Easter Sunday, April 9th, 2023. The sun is shining outside in the bluegrass. I hope you have a wonderful Easter and the balance of the week. Your reader today has been David Halfley.